Well, good morning. All right, welcome back. It's going to be tough, going to be tough to reel you folks in, but that's okay. Well, I got a good report this week, I, or last night, really important stuff. I wasn't able to play, my back is hurting, but our softball team reports that it's three and one, three and one. Mike Pizzuti over there, Michael Pizzuti, he's our leadoff hitter. You can he's probably batting in the six, seven hundreds. Jared, Jared, Jared's doing great. Okay, good. And other people, and thanks, Pat. Uh, I don't, there he is right there for putting it together. And uh, anyway, we're also, you know, I just keep telling you this, we're headed to Hungary in June. That's another, um, yeah, I see somebody with a sad face back there. Maybe, you know, maybe the Lord will work you in too. But anyway, (laughs) I don't know. I just, I got to say this. I get criticized for this, but it's just true. I can't tell you a lie. I really don't like meetings very well. I'm not a meetings person, but we had a meeting a couple weeks ago with the Hungry Missions team. And all I can say is the Holy Spirit just was fell upon the meeting. It was a sweet time of sharing and wonderful. And um, there have been so many um, things that God has has been doing, even in the planning of the missions trip, that came together in about one week. And so uh, it's been a real awesome thing to watch the Lord work. And um, someday uh, after the missions trip, maybe I'll tell you all the things that God has done uh, even to this point. And uh, so we'll be doing lots of things, uh, sharing in Budapest, uh, in the streets and things like that, but also working with the Ukrainian refugees because they go through Budapest to then be transferred out. So um, we're blessed to be able to do that. Uh, you folks have given amazingly. You've supported the trip. Uh, it's been amazing what you've been doing. And so we appreciate that. And um, we even have opportunities for the week that we leave, the people we're going to, their name's Chaba and Agnes. They have a ministry that, uh, called Love Europe where they, tra- um, they do a couple things. They translate gospel materials into all the languages of Europe, of, of course, Hungarian. They're from Hungary, Ukrainian, Russian. So we'll have tons of those things. But also the week that we leave, they're running a soccer camp for the Ukrainian refugees, for the kids. Uh, Chaba is a soccer coach. And so uh, if the Lord puts it on your heart, I didn't even plan to announce this, but oh well, I'll do it. Uh, it costs 200 bucks per kid uh, to go to the soccer camp for them. And uh, maybe we could raise some money and... Uh, uh, you know, send some kids and uh, bless them uh, when we go. But if that's something the Lord puts on your heart, uh, let us know and, um, and we could get that done. So it's going to be a real blessing. And it's not just a soccer camp, by the way. It's a Bible camp. <laughs> they're teaching them Bible the whole, the whole week and their outlet is soccer. So, uh, and Chabas uh, connects through that. So uh, good stuff. Okay. You know me, I'm sure I have other announcements, but we'll just do it in the middle of the teaching. So, um, because I've forgotten some of them, but uh, 
anyway. Uh, turn with me to uh, the book of John, chapter 5. Now, the book of John, chapter 5. And there's so many multi-layers to the book of John. And even as I've been studying it, and I've, you know, obviously, um, anyway, I've read it, you know, on my own in my personal studies and devotions a long time, but this is the third time now that we've taught it uh, at Calvary Chapel. Uh, maybe the first time was at the home fellowship when it started, and I think we taught it one time when we were over at the theater several years ago. So this is the third time, but the reason I'm telling you that is uh, how much I'm learning and growing as I study it, because it's so multi-layered. I mean, we know... Uh, if we, if you've followed along with us, that John doesn't hide the ball. He tells us the purpose for why he's writing this book. He doesn't do it at the beginning, but he does it in chapter 20. And he says that uh, uh, he's writing this book that you, he's like, point, you're reading it. It's like he's pointing the finger to you. You, he's pointing us out. Me, us, we, that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ what does that mean? That means that you may believe that Jesus is the one that was predicted in the Old Testament scriptures, the Christos, the Messiah. He wants us to believe that. And not only that, he wants us to believe that he's the son of God or the God's son. And that believing, watch this, you may have life in his name, which indicates and tells us, doesn't it? I mean, I'm not that smart, but I can figure this out that the book of John is going to tell us that outside of Christ, there's no spiritual life. It also says that Jesus is the son of God. Don't take that to mean that he's lesser than God. That means he's equal with God. He's deity. He's not just the son of God. He's the God's son. We believe in one God and three persons, God, the father, God, the son, God, the Holy spirit. But how many gods we believe in one and this book is totally <laughs> uh, showing that forth, the deity of Christ. And you say, well, why are you making such a big deal about that? The reason I make a big deal of that, and so does John by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is because there's many people who claim to be Christian that don't honor the Son as deity. And we're going to learn today that those who do that don't honor the Father either. You get it? They believe in a different Jesus or a different gospel. So it's really important what we know and what we believe. Don't, amen? Yes, it's really important. And it's not something we're coming here and saying, well, we're better than everybody else. Oh, you don't know. And we're a different group. It's none of that. It's out of a heart of pity and compassion for people who are misled and so we want to know what's right. And so we've come here and we've been studying the book of John. We know why he's writing it. And we also said, because so that people would have life. That's another big theme, that there would be life in Jesus Christ. There is life in Jesus Christ. There's not only just life that's original to him, but he gives life, spiritual light to those who believe on him. And before we get going on that, let's talk about that. Belief is not mental assent only. It is that. You mentally assent to the facts, but it's more than that. It's a giving of your everything, your heart, your soul, 
your mind, your will, your emotions. You're giving everything to the Lord. When he says, come follow me, he's not saying, let's just have a buffet and you pick and choose what you want from me. He's saying, I want you to come follow me to the point that you would pick up your cross daily. So we're learning to die to ourself and live filled by the Spirit, fully ablaze for him. Do we make mistakes and have shortcomings still? Yes, but because we're a new nature, 2 Corinthians 5.17, for those who believe in Jesus, we become new creations in Christ. Because of that, the trajectory of our life, we would, what just happened, is that we would please the Lord and follow him. And I have no idea why that's doing that. And that's important. One of the things that's so interesting about John is this is not a chronology of Jesus's life. I want you to get that out of your head. This isn't a chronology in any way. This is put together by the Holy Spirit through John for particular purposes. He wants to show you the signs that you'll believe, not miracles. I think in this case, he said he doesn't use the word miracles in this book because a sign is something that has a meaning behind it. So when you see Jesus feeding the 5,000, yes, he fed 5,000 people, but there's something behind it. And John puts that in this book for a particular reason or why there's water turned into wine, etc. And so remember, we talked about this right at the beginning. There's several signs. Some people say there's seven signs. Some people say there's nine signs. I'm going to tell you the signs now, and you can pick and choose how many you want to number. (laughs) He turns water to wine here on purpose, and we talked about why that is in John 2. He uh, heals the nobleman's son in John 4. He uh, cures a paralytic at the pool of Bethesda in John chapter 5. And by the way, Several of you have been to that pool, and you know where it is, and it's awesome to see in your mind. He walks on the Sea of Galilee in John 6. He gives sight to the blind in John 9. He raises Lazarus from the dead in John 11, and most people stop right there. But he also gave a miraculous, um, uh, you know, nets. He caught a whole bunch of fish in, uh, what? Somebody said something, they're like, giving me the word. I can't think of the word. But anyway, he gave a miraculous catch of fish in John 21. And then other people add that the final and greatest sign that he gave, and true it is, is when he raised from the dead. But there's another thing that's going on, and we're going to start seeing it as we move through the scriptures now. Another layer. And that are the I am statements of the book of John. Everybody know what I'm talking about? In Exodus 3, you remember this? Moses asked God, I don't know if I'm ready to lead. So, and, and he gives, gives all the excuses. I don't know how to talk really well. I'm not a good leader. God says, don't worry about it. I'll give you your big brother. And then he goes, but Lord, I don't even know who to tell people you are. And remember what God says to him. He says, tell them I am. I am. And the book of John gives us seven I am statements. It's as if the uh, Holy Spirit is saying, okay, you want an explanation of who God is and what that means, I am. Well, in John, he tells us, he says, I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world, the door of the sheep, the door, the good shepherd, the resurrection and the life, the way and the truth and the life and the true vine. 
It's as if the Lord, and we'll talk about this as we get to them, is saying, Jesus, who is God, is everything you need him to be. There's nowhere else you need to look. I am. And there's all kinds of other themes that we've been seeing uh, through this book. Remember, this book mostly, which is different than the other Gospels, takes place in Judea and Jerusalem. That's the southern part of Israel. Also remember, I love to keep throwing this out to you because I didn't know it before I studied it this year. (laughs) 92% of the material in John is original to John. That's fascinating to me. So the point is the Lord has a particular purpose. And for those who are already in Christ, remember, we picked as our theme, whatever, for this book, our theme logo, or I don't even know what to say, the eagle. Why? Because the eagle is a bird that can look directly into the sun and soar high. But guess what? For those who are in Christ, that's what we get to do too. We get to look directly at the son, who he is. This book is more about who he is than what he does. And we'll soar also. And that's what the Lord wants for us. And so last week, thanks to Xander for filling in and doing an amazing job in John chapter five, as he taught on the man who was healed at the pool of Bethesda. And the reason he uh, stepped in is the Lord just put a friend of mine uh, and, and I together, and he invited me to come and teach at his church. And it was just a time to bless him and his church, and it was a real great time. So I appreciate Xander uh, uh, stepping in there. But anyway, we're going to pick up here in verse 16 of chapter 5. So he's just healed a man at the pool of Bethesda. And it's, this is what it says in verse 16. For this reason, what reason? (laughs) Just from last week. Because not only did he heal a man, but this is the part that really got them mad. He healed a man on the Sabbath. And they become really angry. For this reason, the Jews persecuted Jesus and sought to kill him because he had done these things on the Sabbath. Now, I want you to let that sink in for a minute. They wanted to commit a killing, a murder, because they or he violated the Sabbath. He healed a person on the Sabbath. Now, you know, right, that the Sabbath isn't Sunday. The Sabbath was the day that the Lord in Genesis, he created for six days. And then what did the Lord do? He, most people would say it like this. He took a break and rested. Well, that's not really true. Lord neither sleeps nor slumbers. What the Lord did was he looked at everything he had made and he said, wow, this is good. And he gave an opportunity, watch, for people to rest. Everybody with me? And there is a thing called, in in the chapter of the Ten Commandments, and in the Ten Commandments that says, 
you know, remember the Sabbath to do what? You guys finish it. To keep, yeah, to keep it holy, right? And so remember the Sabbath, it says in the Ten Commandments. So what happened was, during the time of Jesus and before, a lot of, watch, man-made rules and regulations got put together to keep people from, quote, unquote, working on the Sabbath. And Jesus, on purpose, provokes that. I mean, he pokes at that, right? And he says, well, he doesn't say it, but he does it. He, he heals somebody on the Sabbath. And this causes all kinds of angst among religious people. <laughs> and I use that term on purpose. People who like to hold to externals and have outward holiness and nothing on the inside, they like to keep rules. And here, at this time, the religious people, I just want you to see this and feel it again, they get so mad that he has violated these man-made rules that they want to murder him. And that's what religious things do, or that's what religion does. When it's just external and outward, and the rituals cause you to keep score and one-up and be better than others, that's what it does. And it's a sickness that leads people to hate. I'm just amazed. It's so profound the gospel and yet so simple in some ways. Jesus says, you know how I'm going to tell if you're really my disciple? By how many rules you keep. He doesn't say that. I'm tricking you. He says how you love. Love. The weird thing about knowledge and rules and information Corinthians tells us knowledge puffs up. And love is what we're aiming at. Love keeps us humble. And is, we are humble because we do love. And we only have that kind of love through a relationship with Jesus. Well, they sought to kill him, but Jesus answered them. Jesus answered them. My father has been working until now, and I have been working. My father has been working till now, and I have been working. When I was a kid, that would puzzle me. Maybe it puzzles you. Why in the world would Jesus say that then? I mean, here, you've healed this guy, and Jesus answered, my father has been working until now, and I have been working. Well, He's telling them that God himself isn't resting ever. Oh, he made creation and did all of that, but the Lord is still at work now. And it's always right and time to do good to others through mercy and compassion. There's no taking off from that. And the Lord is, right? He's still working. He's drawing men and women and boys and girls to himself. And so the Lord didn't stop working. And he doesn't stop working on Sunday or Saturday or any day. 
And here Jesus says, my father has been working until now, and I have been working. And he says, not write it down, mark it down. He doesn't say our father, he says, or the father. He says, my father. He does it on purpose. And the reason he does it on purpose, he wants you and I and us to know that he's claiming deity. That's what that's about. He's saying we never stop working. It's always right and good to do good. Mercy and compassion doesn't take a time out. And oh, by the way, I and the Father, he's going to say it in John 10, but he's saying it sort of right here, are one. Just because it's a father-son relationship doesn't mean there's a greater or a lesser. God the Father, the first person of the Trinity, God the Son, the second person of the Trinity, God the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity. But don't get messed up by number one, two, and three. They're the same in nature and essence. And yet there's a distinction. And you say, well, I don't completely understand it. Well, too bad. Neither do I. (laughs) But that's what the Bible teaches, you see. I think one of the great liberating chapters of the Bible, I think it's a pillar here. I, I always tell Brad, write this one down. It's a pillar. Understand Philippians 2, and it'll unlock much of the Bible for you, especially the New Testament. When Jesus didn't consider it robbery to be equal with God, the Bible tells us. He was God. I mean, he wasn't stealing when he said, I'm God. And yet, he emptied himself. That's the great kenosis. That's the word in the Greek chapter. He emptied himself of his deity. What did he mean? Did he stop being God? No, he'd never stop being God. But he laid down his rights to the privileges of deity. Philippians 2. Beautiful. So that he lived in perfect dependence on the Father when he was here. By the Spirit. Guess else, who else is called to do that? You and I, us. And we watch Jesus and we are just blown away. Here what he says is, my father has been working until now and I have been working. He is claiming deity. And if you don't think he is, just read the next sentence. <laughs> because there's a lot of groups here now that say Jesus isn't God, but the people he was talking to knew instantly. Therefore, the Jews sought all the more to kill him. The people he's talking to, the religious order, the Jewish people, they're like, whoa, wait a second. He's claiming to be God. Because he not only broke the Sabbath, that's one thing they're mad about. You couldn't break the man-made religious rules. But he also said that God was his father, making himself equal with God. You see it right there? Everybody nod. And the reason I'm saying nod is because you're going to get knocks on your door. I got a letter yesterday. Got a letter from a precious lady who's misguided. And she's part of a group that has a watchtower. And she sent me a letter and said, da 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 And I put it in my book because I'm going to write her back. And I'm going to show her the gospel. And I'm going to bring it from this book that we're reading right now. Jesus is God. He says it. He's equal with God. Then Jesus answered and said to them, here he begins to explain his relationship with the Father. 
Most assuredly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of himself, but what he sees the father do. For whatever he does, the father, the son does in like manner. For the father loves the son and shows him all things that he himself does. Now, I want you to see something here. What The first thing I want you to see is that Jesus is rooted and grounded in the father's love. In fact, do you remember this when he was baptized? The father spoke. Do you remember this? And he said, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. Hey, you know it happened again, right? Where did it happen? At the transfiguration. What did the Lord say? This is my son in whom I'm well pleased. And then he put a little tagline on there. Listen to him. (laughs) But see, that's important. There's this relationship between God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Self-sufficient. God is self-sufficient. But also there's this perfect communion there. The Father loves the Son. The Son loves the Father. And I can't do all the different... You'd get it, though. (laughs) How many different ones? But the Holy Spirit, right? You get it? And if you'll grasp that concept, I'm telling you, this will revolutionize your life. Because in 1 John 4, it says that we love Him. Why? Because He, what? First loved us. Do you, do you know why we're feeling, even in the Christian life, I'm convinced, and I, I know, but, but anyway, you, I'm convinced, we're dealing with so many things in the Christian world, unsettledness, anxiety, fear, um, uh, I don't know, loneliness, and just keep going on, and I don't have them all to list for you, but listen, watch, it's rooted in this, <laughs> that the, that God The triune Godhead here, self-sufficient, perfectly self-sufficient, didn't need to create us, and yet did. See, that should blow you away when you don't feel like you fit in. Yeah, but the creator of the universe loves me. Loves me. I feel loved. You see, I don't think, how do I say this right? I want to say this right. I don't think it's so much important for us to know that we love God. It is important. That is important. Don't, don't think it isn't. What's really important is to know that God loves you. To know you're loved. And here, Jesus knows it. And he's responding to this thing that happened on the Sabbath. And he's saying, what I want you to take you to, first of all, is that the Father and the Son love one another. And that everything we're doing emanates from the love that I have, the pity that I have on people, the compassion I have on people. And the Lord is like that. God the Father, God the Father is like that. He is compassionate, and he pities. He, he didn't. It just blows away right here. This blows away this concept. Some people think God took the world, wound it up, set it over here, and just said, go for it. And that's totally not right. The Lord is interested in the people and the, 
the things that happen here. He doesn't just wind us up. He's intimately involved. And it all comes and stems from this love, this self-sufficiency that he has in heaven. For the father loves the son and shows him all things that he himself does. And he's going to show, he will show him greater works than these that you may marvel. Remember, he's speaking to the Jewish people. You're like, wait a minute. When I read something like that, when I get to greater works, I'm like, oh, shoot, what's these greater works? And this is it. For as the father raises the dead and gives life to them, who had the power to raise the dead and give life? And we see it a few places or several places in the Old Testament that God would raise people from the dead. We see it. And if you were Jewish and knew the Old Testament, or if you are Jewish and know the Old Testament, or if you even just know the Old Testament, you know that it's God, the Father, who has power to give life. You understand this, right? And so he says, for as the Father raises the dead and gives life to them, even so the Son gives life to whom he will. You say to yourself, well, which is it? Does the Father give life? Does the Son give life? Or does the Holy Spirit give life? And the answer is yes. So, he's answering this question. He's answering the question, basically, how do you think it's appropriate to work on the Sabbath and to heal this dude? And now, the Lord, he just starts listing the relationship between him and the Father. And I want you to see something. This is the part where you're looking into the Son. You're looking right into the realms of heaven, right here. Jesus is uncovering that so that you can look and see what the relationships or the relationship is between he and the father. For the father judges no one, but has committed all judgment to the son. Now I want you to see verse 23. File this away. That all should honor the son just as they honor the father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. In other words, you can't pick and choose here, according to Jesus. If you believe Jesus is a good teacher and nothing else, you've missed the point. Jesus says, I'm giving you no room for that. By the way, Jesus has been committed, watch, judgment. What do you say when you address a judge? What do you say? Ah, why do you, oh, your honor. You don't just go up and call them by their first name. Hey, Bill, I'm here. I want to talk to you about my client. I mean, you'd be in contempt. No, it's honor. And, and the father has committed judgment to the son. Watch this, that all should honor the son just as they honor the father. A good judge, watch deserves great honor. And one of the roles of Jesus Christ is that he is a judge. We're going to talk about it here in a minute. We're going to talk about it. As we go on, verse 24, most assuredly, I say to you, most assuredly means listen up, people. <laughs> in, in the King James, it says verily, verily. In other words, pay attention right here. 
If you wanted to stick something on your refrigerator to share with anybody who is questioning the claims of Christ, want to know how to uh, come into the family of God, well, here's one verse that you ought to just stick it right up there, memorize it, and give to as many people as possible, and it's this. Listen up. I say to you, he who hears my word, hears my word, not man's word, but my word, and believes in him who sent me has everlasting not life and shall not come into judgment, but has passed from death into life. You're like, what? It's because the Bible says that outside of Christ, we're dead spiritually. We're dead. We're children of wrath, the Bible tells us. We're children of wrath. The wrath of God is upon us. And if we don't have something happen to us, I don't know if that's the right way of saying it. We're going to die in our sins. And that something is we come into a living, dynamic relationship with Christ. And he initiates it and does it all. We just receive the gift of eternal life. And if you do that, you begin to have everlasting life, not when you die, heart attack, and go to heaven, or go to the afterlife. You don't, you don't have eternal life then. The Bible says you have eternal life right at the minute. You come into his family and you pass from death to life and there's no judgment. Actually, that's not exactly true. <laughs> we'll talk about that in a minute. There's not the bad kind of judgment. We'll talk about that. Most assuredly, I say to you, the hour is coming and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. What? Yeah, because we're all dead. I'm looking at a, a, a room full of people who were formerly dead. And maybe somebody in here still is dead spiritually. When you hear the voice, when you hear from the Son of God, the Godson, and those who hear what he has to say, Jesus is saying this now, will live. And they're going to live forever. You might die physically if the rapture doesn't happen first. But death to the Christian is just the entryway to all of eternity. Just to meet the Lord, that's it. Wow. Nobody as a Christian, is scared to die. Oh, we don't want to go through the physical part. That Nobody's looking for that. But to go where we know we're going, whoo, it's for eternity. So verse 26, for as the father has life in himself, so he has granted the son to have life to, in himself. Now, almost every preacher is going to take you here and say, well, right there, the Lord can grant life to others. But that's not what that's saying. <laughs> what he's saying here is much more staggering, if that's even possible. Because Jesus does grant life to others. But what he's saying here is that life is original to the Son. Do you get it? There was never a beginning or an end. There always has been. In fact, if you go back to the first chapter of John, verse 4, it says, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. This is spectacular. The Father, as the Father has life in himself, he has life, so he has granted the Son to have life in himself. It's original to Jesus. In other words, 
the eternality is there for both the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And then it says, and he's given him authority to execute judgment also because he is the son of man. Now, when we're reading this, we don't maybe get it so much, but notice up above, or at least in my Bible, it's above. In verse 22, it says that uh, uh, the father has committed all judgment. Now he's telling us not only has he committed judgment to him, but that it's the son's role to execute judgment. You getting that? And we live in an era of grace. Jesus came once. He died. He rose again and he ascended into heaven. But the Bible tells us that he's coming again. And when he comes again, he's coming in judgment, folks, as the great judge. And he's going to execute judgment, and he he uses, I want you to see this, he switches from son of God to son of man. Did you notice that? Why does he do that? I think he does it for multiple reasons. One is, who do you vote for when you vote for a judge? You know who I would vote for? Somebody with great life experiences. Somebody who's been through the trials and the tribulations. Somebody who knows what it's like to live and to, to work in the legal community, and then you vote for them on the voting day. Don't just go down and vote for somebody because they happen to be a this or a that. Vote for one who's qualified. But here, it, he switches to son of man, I think. One of the reasons is because in all points, the one who is doing the judgment the judging. The Bible tells us in all points, just like you and I, he was tempted, yet he's without sin. That's important, I think. He knows what it feels like to be you, in a sense. He knows what you're going through. So when he sits up on the throne, it's not like, here I am and there you are. It is like that because he's so glorious and amazing. But he knows Do you get that? He knows what it's like to be hungry and thirsty and tired and tempted with kingdoms and power and all the stuff that we go through. And yet he was without sin. And he's the one that judges. Praise the Lord. You don't want to vote for a guy with a, is it a silver spoon in their mouth? Is that the phrase? Or a gal with a silver spoon in their mouth? Never been, you know, just been given everything. No, you want somebody who's been through the ringer. But also, I think he says he's the son of man for this reason. That's a direct reference to Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14, which is a messianic passage that says that the Messiah will be the son of man. In other words, this is the predicted one. I'm the predicted one. He announces it. When he says it to those Jewish folks, they must have been like, what are you saying? Do not marvel at this, get it? Because he's just said he's the son of man. For the hour is coming in which all who were in the graves will hear his voice. They're going to hear his voice. And they're going to come forth. 
Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. Now, folks, this is why you've got to be a right divider of the word right here. You have to be a right divider of the word. You don't read this and go, oh, shoot, I must be a good little boy in order to get into heaven. No. You know the whole Bible. You know the rest of the Bible. And the Bible says, by grace, you have been saved through faith. It's not, listen, it's not your doing. It's not because of good works, it says right there in Ephesians chapter 2. You know why it's not because of good works? It's so perfect. It describes my life perfectly. Because you would boast. You would boast and brag. And that's what happens to people who want to try and raise themselves up to be good little boys or good little girls to get into heaven. You know what they say? They say things like, (laughs) you know... She hasn't been to Bible study in a long time. I've been, you know, 50 times this year. What does she do? She does nothing. Church is split like this, folks. I pay more into the box, they say. I have a bigger say in the church because I give more money or whatever. We would brag. No, it's the gift of God. That's salvation. It's the gift of God. So when you read this, the resurrection of life Those who have done good go to the resurrection of life. What is the best and greatest thing you you can do? The greatest thing in your whole life, just surrender and receive the gift of salvation. That's it. And if you do that, you're going to be raised in resurrection to the resurrection of life. I'm going to talk about that in a minute. And those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. Now, folks, you got to be a thinker right here. you got to know the word, the whole word, and what... It says here is, or what it says throughout the Bible I, I, is this. If you want to count on the righteousness of Christ to get into heaven, you surrender your life to Christ and you get his righteousness. That's beautiful because when you go to be with the Lord, <laughs> he sees you through the righteousness of his son, the blood of his son. He sees you through those lens. But if you choose not to surrender your life to Christ, God is, or Jesus is still going to be a perfectly just and fair God. And you know what he's going to say? Okay. And he wouldn't say it like me. I'd sort of be a smart aleck about it. But Jesus is going to say, we're going to give you a perfect opportunity to present your case before me. So here's what I want you to do. I want you to present your case of righteousness to me. Based on your righteousness that you've lived out, in your life. The problem with that is if you failed that much, you failed in all. You can't do it, folks. Jesus obliterated it when he said, oh, you think murder is stabbing somebody, and that is murder, but murder is hating somebody. And if you've said you've never hated anybody, you're now sinning again because you're lying (laughs) or lusted after somebody or whatever, or coveted. Who here has not coveted something? Well, anyway, so, but those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. So here, let's talk about this. The first resurrection is unto life, is unto life, surrendered to Jesus, and we will be resurrected. In Philippians 3.21, it tells us, it gives us a a precursor or a a clue. We're going to have a glorified, resurrected body. But 1 Thessalonians 4.16 tells us, and you could read it, is that when Jesus comes in the clouds and we're caught up in the air, we'll be changed in the twinkling of an eye. We believe 
that at the time of the rapture that precedes the seven years of uh, period of tribulation, for those who have died, they're going to be resurrected unto life. First Thessalonians 4.16, you can look it up, right? That'll happen there at the time of the rapture. But what, what is he talking about when he says this resurrection of condemnation? Well, the Bible tells us in Revelation 20 verse 11, I don't want anybody in this room or anyone at all to be at this judgment. It's called the great white throne throne judgment. It happens at the end of the millennial kingdom. And that's where Jesus opens up, hits the gavel, says, okay, now let's see, you come before me, you give me your case on righteousness. And the Bible says that it's a judgment unto condemnation. And the reason it is, is because all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The Bible says those who sin will probably die. It doesn't say that. It says will surely die. So there's these resurrections and Jesus tells us about it right here in John chapter 5. Verse 30, I can of myself do nothing as I hear I judge and my judgment is righteous because I do not seek my own will but the will of the Father who sent me. Now, one thing I just want to say before we move on is this. Jesus has life in himself. It's original to him. And my good friend Gabe back there, as I talked to him right here before the sermon, brings up an amazing point that's so true. That's the reason that he, when he laid down his life willingly, not because he got caught, he could raise it up again. Jesus has power over life and death. You can see that. Isn't that beautiful? And here you look right into the sun, and we've been doing that. When you read through this and start to figure out and think on the ramifications of this, what Jesus is saying, it's revolutionary. It'll re- revolutionize your life. Okay, watch this real quickly. Deuteronomy 19.15 and Numbers 33 tell us in the Jewish way uh, of, of, of presenting evidence that it had to be presented with the um, benefit of two or three witnesses. You get that? You know this, right? In fact, that comes into play at Jesus's trial. Remember when they say they couldn't get two witnesses to agree? Well, that was a big problem. And so it was an illegal trial. But here, Jesus says, oh, you want witnesses? Like it isn't enough that I'm giving you my word on this. Here, here's some witnesses that testify of what I'm saying is true. Here's one. If I bear witness of myself, my witness isn't true. There is another who bears witness of me, and I know that the witness which he witnesses of me is true. You have sent to John. This isn't the writer John. This is John the Baptist, his relative. What did John the Baptist do? He, was, uh, he prepared the way for the Messiah out in the wilderness. That was predicted in the Old Testament. He, he was a forerunner of the Messiah. That's beautiful. He said, remember this? He said that famous thing that we all like to quote, he must increase, I must decrease. By the way, we like to quote it, but not many of us like to do it. Just look at celebrity pastors. 
with their $10,000 suits or their $1,000 tennis shoes and their Rolexes. Come on. And their million people Twitter accounts. It's really sad. It's not, I must increase so that more people can know about you, Jesus. It's, I must decrease so that you can increase. You get the difference? So that's this one, John, John the Baptist. And he has borne witness to the truth. Yet I do not receive testimony from man, but I say these things that you may be saved. By the way, just notice Jesus was so rooted and grounded in the love of Christ or the love of his father. Watch this, that the things that men said about him went off his back. Now, of course, there probably was some stinging just like it happens to you. But you understand, folks, right? As you and I and we are tend to be people pleasers, people pleasers are just idle, making themselves an idol. And so you're more pleased with what men do say about you than what the Father says about you. Jesus is telling us here that was not prime in his life. What was prime in his life was pleasing the Father. That's rooted in the love of God. When you know God loves you, you'll stand up when you have to stand up, even when it's hard and difficult. Uh, Verse 35, John, that's who he's talking about. He, John, was the burning and shining lamp. That's so perfect. Lamp is light. Remember, Jesus is the light of the world, but his followers are also the light of the world. John was preparing the way by lighting the light. Look this way. But guess what happened to to, to a light back then? A lot different than now. It would eventually burn out. And the real light would shine. So John was the burning and shining lamp, and you were willing for a time to rejoice in the light. They sort of liked what John was doing at the beginning, but as they started to figure out he was pointing the way to the Messiah, then it became a problem. But I have a greater witness than John's. For the works which the Father has given me to finish, the very works that I do, bear witness of me that the Father has sent me. And what was the work of Jesus? Here it is, to go to the cross. Oh, Lord, you want to call me to be a missionary in Hawaii? Oh, sweet. I remember one time I was flying from Hawaii to Colorado, or maybe back, one of the two, I can't remember, we played a game in, in the West, and we were coming back. And I just happened to think, uh, read the back. I love to read Ski Magazine. Anybody else like me? Okay, well, I do, all right? And the last article on the last page was this pastor who had a church sponsored by Taos, T-A-O-S, New Mexico's ski resort, up on top of the mountain. I said, oh, my goodness. That's what I want to do right there, Lord. <laughs> And why did I tell you that? I don't really know. No, I do know. I do know. Is that we're to be subject to the will of the Father. And a lot of times, folks, the will of the Father isn't the easy path. Jonah proves that. God told him to go to the hated Assyrians. He went the exact opposite way. When he gets to uh, Joppa near uh, Tel Aviv, Oh, there's a boat available. Open door. I know it's an open door, Lord. Oh, I have the money to pay for the fare. Oh, Lord, I know it's an open door. We got to quit saying that so much in the Christian church because Satan opens doors. 
and he'll make them attractive. Jesus says there's tribulation in this world. And he also said, it's my will to do the will of the Father who sent me. And the will of the Father for Jesus was to go to the cross. That's it. To solve forever the problem, how could a just God be with a sinning people? The Bible tells us in Romans 3, he's both the just and the justifier because he sent his son Jesus to take the punishment for what we deserved. It was hard, but it was necessary. And that tells me that you folks, we all together matter incredibly to God. He would not spare his son. Well, if I bear witness of, or or excuse me, so we get there. And he says, these are the greater works. These are greater works uh, that I do that bear witness of me that the father has sent me. And the father himself who sent me has testified of me. You have neither heard his voice at any time nor seen his form. Where did he testify of him? At the baptism, at the uh, transfiguration. That's the ultimate fulfillment of that verse. But you uh, do not have his word abiding in you because uh, whom he sent, him you do not believe. Wow. Show this to the groups that don't believe in the deity of Christ. Hmm. You think you have eternal life and these are they which testify of me, but you are not willing to come to me that you may have Life. Where's life found? Real life? It's in Jesus. I do, not res- I do not receive honor from men, but I know you that you do not have the love of God in you. You imagine this, folks, listen, seriously. Can you imagine going to your, uh, do religious things your whole life? Just your whole life. And being so devoted to it, and so devoted to the rules, and so devoted to the tithing, and so devoted to this, and so devoted to that, and you had no inward peace or joy or love. Can you imagine doing that your whole life? How miserable, the most miserable of experiences that must be, right? Paul said that sheer stupidity. If you don't believe in the death and resurrection of Christ, and it's come into your heart, he's come into your heart, but you just live in an external way, stupid. Well, here, you are not willing to come to me that you may not have life. I do not receive honor, verse 41, from men, but I know you that you do not have the love of God in you. I have come in my Father's name and you don't receive me. If another comes in his own name, him you will receive. Now, this is a reference, I think, over the years to all the false messiahs that will come. Isn't it interesting that the Bible tells us in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 that the man or the son of perdition, the man of perdition, the antichrist, uh, the man of sin is going to come and is going to be a false messiah according to Satan. That's 1 Thessalonians 2.7, the ultimate fulfillment of that. You'd like to believe others. Why don't you like to believe the Messiah? Boy, there must be an amazing amount of spiritual warfare about that very issue. Do you agree? How can you believe who receive honor from one another and do not seek the honor that comes from the, quote, only God... There's not all roads to heaven, folks. There's only one way that's the most merciful and 
uh, gracious thing that a loving God could do. Can you imagine if he gave you like, I always say this, can you imagine teaching your uh, kindergartner 25 ways to tie their shoe? You'd be like, the kindergartner would be like, "What what? I can't figure this out. And the Lord just says, here, here's one way. Easy. We distort it in so many ways. It's the most gracious thing. How, how can you receive? Do not think, verse 45, that I shall accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you. Remember, he's talking to the Jewish people. What do the Jewish people, especially these religious people, know? What do they know better than anything? They have the whole thing memorized. They took great pains from the time that they were written until today to write it down exactly. I mean exactly. What is it? The first five books of the law. Moses put it together. You have, the Lord says, to the Jewish establishment at this time, somebody else accusing you, and that's a Moses. Why? Because everything in there from stem to stern is pointing to Jesus. Just read the book of Leviticus, man. I love that book. It's all pointing to Jesus. All the sacrifices, everything's pointing to Jesus. There's another thing that testifies of me. For if you believe Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. But if you do not believe these writings, how will you believe my words? Wow. How are you going to advance on to the, the, the simple yet profound gospel if you can't even see in the scriptures that you study diligently that it was pointing to me? That's what he's saying right there, which tells us something real great right there. What happens when somebody doesn't believe? Well, it's something spiritual. The Bible tells us that men suppress the truth. They like darkness rather than light. The Bible also tells us they're blinded by the enemy. So what should we be doing for those who don't, quote unquote, get it? Pray. Call on the Lord. Ask the Lord to open their eyes. Fill up the prayer times and, and, and just bring people to the Lord. Well, here's what happens now. This proves again that John's written on purpose. Several things happen between chapter 5 and chapter 6. Several things. John leaves them all out. You know what John leaves out? Can you hardly believe this? John leaves out the greatest sermon of all time. He doesn't put in the Sermon on the Mount. It goes in here chronologically. He doesn't put in that whole place throughout the other Gospels where Jesus explains the parables. None of that goes in here. And there's some other things. But John brings this thing now. That's one of the signs. And it's in all four of the Gospels. It's very rare. What's that? It's the feeding of the 5,000. Jesus went over the Sea of Galilee, one of the rare times you'll see in the book of John, Jesus at Galilee. It's the Sea of Tiberias, and a great multitude followed him. By the way, in Luke chapter 9, in this same account, this is awesome. This is directly for me, but maybe it'll be for you too. In Luke chapter 9, it says that Jesus went across uh, 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 the Sea of Galilee to be alone. (laughs) can you imagine doing all this ministry lord father just let me get by myself for a little bit i grew up i was the youngest in the family by six or seven years i love to be alone and before i was a christian 
I think being alone was an idol. And I don't know that that's false. I mean, that's true. I mean, I love being alone. But then the Lord did something in my heart. And here it teaches you that when the great multitude wants to hear, or ministry was never a bother to him. He followed him over there. And because they saw his signs, which he performed on those who were diseased, by the way, I want you to look in Luke 9:11. He not only did signs, he also taught them from the scriptures. And Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat with his disciples. Now the Passover, a feast of the Jews, was near. What happened at Passover? No matter if you were in the north or anywhere else, you were to bring your family down to Jerusalem. So many people believe the feeding of the 5,000. Why were there 5,000 people around? Because they were traveling back to Jerusalem. Jesus here is now on the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee, right below the Golan Heights. And it says he went up on a mountain. So many people believe he went up to the Golan Heights and spoke this to these people. He lifts up his eyes. He sees a great multitude coming toward him. And he said to Philip, where shall we buy bread that these may eat? Now see how Jesus is. Come on, folks. Jesus is really spiritually provocative because he knows there's something in Philip that wants to go into the town and buy and he knows they don't have enough money because to buy for 5,000, which is not really 5,000 people, there's more than that probably, but you get the point. There's no way he can do it. So Jesus is being spiritually provocative. What do we want to do? Hey, what do we want to do when we start a ministry? How are we going to raise the money? <laughs> we say that stuff. How, I hear a lot of people say, I can't go on the trip because, you know, I don't have the money. Well, and I understand you want to be a good steward and all that, and you want to, you know, listen to Dave Ramsey or whatever, but right. And you got to be good to, about that. But here's the thing, where God sends you, God will provide. If the Lord is calling you to something, money's not an object, folks. He owns a cattle on a thousand hills. There's no way you'll be stopped by money. Anyway, he he's lifts up his eyes, sees a great multitude. Philip, hey, we're going to buy something to eat. But this he said to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered and said, 200 denarii worth of bread isn't sufficient that everyone may have a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, and folks, circle this, write it down in your Bible. What was Andrew's ministry? You can see it in John 10, 40, John 12, 20. It's that he just brought people to Jesus. Just bring people, be an inviter, get them around the people of God, share blessing and scripture with them while you're talking. You don't have to be weird about it. You just be naturally supernatural. Just share and bless and encourage. And that's what uh, this one did. He brings, look at this, a little boy who had five barley loaves, by the way, the barley, barley is the grain of the common people. In other words, his family wasn't rich. He was a regular Joe here, little kid, who had five barley loaves and two small fish. But what are they among so many? I want you to just read you something that someone else has produced, but I want you to know this. Bread comes from grain. Hang in here now. I'm almost done. You'll get to the pirate game here soon, but bread comes from grain, which has the power of multiplication and reproduction within itself. 
But when it is made into bread, are you you're following with me? When it's made into bread, the grain is crushed, thus making it dead. No one ever multiplied wheat by planting flour, yet Jesus can bring life from death. He multiplied loaves of bread made from dead, crushed grain and from dead fish. Are you getting that? So here you keep reading. He takes this fish and he says, and Jesus said, now make the people sit down. In another gospel, he says he put them in aisles. That's beautiful to me. There was much grass in the place. I really think that's a reference. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. What does he say next? He makes me lie down in green pastures. Here you see Jesus being the shepherd of people. And what does a shepherd do? He makes sure they're fed and they're protected. So the men sat down in number about 5,000 and Jesus took the loaves. And when he had given thanks, he distributed them to the disciples and the disciples to those sitting down and likewise of the fish as much as they wanted. So when they were filled, he said to his disciples, gather, gather up the fragments that remain so that nothing is lost. Therefore, they gathered them up, filled 12 baskets, five barley loaves, which were left over by those who had eaten. Then those men, uh, uh, when they had seen the sign that Jesus did, said, this truly is the prophet who is to come into the world. That's a reference to Deuteronomy 18.15. And there's going to be this great prophet. Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment. But okay, I'll stop but only when I tell you these three things. The first thing is, God doesn't need much. 5,000 men, which means a lot more people, women and children, with these loaves and these fish, God doesn't need much from us. Just give him what you have. What is it that we could possibly give to the Lord? Romans 12. Us. Just us. You don't have to look the best or speak the best or be the most gregarious or be personable or play an instrument or teach. You don't have to do any of those things. Just give him your life. He'll multiply us. And all the while, giving thanks. Isn't this beautiful? Don't you think Jesus could have fed these people himself? But he used people like you and I to distribute the goods. What is God calling you to do? Take whatever you have, wherever you are, whatever the Lord's calling you to, whatever it is, just don't worry about it being little. You got a little house and you want to start a home fellowship, do it. You don't have the money to do this or to do that, but you know the Lord's calling you to do it. Pray about it. Seek the Lord. He'll provide not only will provide, he'll multiply to great abundance. He doesn't need much. You notice when we skip ahead in verse 22, on the following day when the people who were standing on the other side of the sea saw that there was no other boat there except the one which the disciples had entered, 
and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but his disciples had gone away alone. However, other boats came from Tiberias near the place where they ate bread after the Lord had given thanks. When the people therefore saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they also got into boats and came over to Capernaum, seeking Jesus. And when they found them on the other side, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? And Jesus answered then and said, most assuredly, I say to you, you seek me, not because you saw the signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. Don't labor for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to everlasting life, which the Son of Man will give you, because the God the Father has set his seal on him. Then they said to him, which any of us would do, what shall we do that we do the works of God or work the works of God? And Jesus answered and said to them, this is the work of God that you believe in him whom he sent. Therefore, they said to him, what sign will you perform that you may see it and believe you? What work will you do? Our father ate the manna in the desert. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven. He's referring to their Jewish past when they were in the wilderness and received manna every morning. Miraculous. Verse 32, then Jesus said to them, most assuredly, I say to you, Moses did not give you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. Here it comes. Here's the punchline. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Uh Uh-oh. Then they said to him, Lord, give us this bread always. And Jesus said, here it is, the first I am statement. I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet you don't believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will by no means cast out. Here it is, folks. Don't you understand why there's unsettledness in your heart? It's because we and us, we live for the things of the world. We need the next paycheck and the next this and the next that. And we just think food will satiate us or, uh, you know, entertainment or work or image or whatever it is. And we're still unsettled. And Jesus said, but you're missing it. If you'll just come to me and take of me, I am the thing that nourishes always. Wow. Where do we quiet our settled heart? Because our sins have been forgiven. They shall not count against us anymore. It's by taking in Jesus into our life, by believing. And you say, well, I'm a Christian. Well, keep believing Jesus will settle us. Let's pray. Well, Lord, we come here this morning thankful and grateful and humbled, man, woo, by what you've just shown us here in the Gospels. It's so heady. We could study it for a lot of years and keep studying it. And so we're thankful for that. And yet, Lord, even a child could understand the Gospel. You tell us to have childlike faith. So I just pray, Lord, that anybody here who doesn't know you in a real and saving way, your heart, their hearts would be pierced and they would come to know you today and give their whole life, mind, will, emotions, life, everything over to you and surrender and then follow you all their days. And for those who have made that choice, or those whom you've called and they've responded to your call, Lord, I pray that you would 
keep being their bread of life, and we know you will. (laughs) Help us, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.